Hey everybody, we are Martin, Robert, and Francis, and this is Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head rent-free. Hi, I'm Martin. Uh, I'm Francis. And I'm Robert. Welcome to episode four of Snakes and Otters podcast. And uh, as always, we have a nice fistful of bourbon. This time we have Angel's Envy. That's right. Um, instead of Woodford Reserve. And uh, this is the first time I've had the Angel's Envy, and it's uh, it's pretty tasty stuff. Smooth. So, guys, I've got something for you here that I think y'all dig. Um, I recently finished Paul Murray Kendall's Richard the uh, Third, and Francis always tells me that this is the sin qua non. That's right. Uh, this is very nice. Very nice. <laughs> Richard the Third of right. Richard the Third books, which I think is Latin for "It's the shit, yo." That's right. <laughs> and. Um, so what I, aside from the amazing biography of Richard III, what struck me about this book is that Kendall goes into a great deal of detail about our picture of Richard III uh, and how it comes, of course, from Shakespeare to a large degree. Yeah. Um, and he goes into talking about... Um, Shakespeare uh, and the sources, things like Hollingshead's Chronicles mm -hmm. and these other sources. And what struck me, of course, is that these are all pro Tudor, right. pro Henry Tudor sources. In fact, Thomas More wrote one of the major sources. Uh, and he was a Tudor, uh, you know, although he didn't end well for him. <laughs> yeah, he was a big Tudor fan. To a point. To a, to point. a point. That's correct. But ultimately, yeah, that is one of the major sources for this. You might mention, though, too, this book, Kendall's book was written in, uh, uh, did we got, do we have a date on this here? Um, uh, yes, I mean, this goes back to, I believe, the 1950s. That's yes. right, yeah, exactly. 1955. Sure. This uh, is long before we even thought about not only finding, actually, Richard, but before the existence of the Richard III Society, which was really intending to repair or uh, revise his historical uh, reputation. So this predates all that. And it's intended to be one of the biggest scholarly works, but it's still very accessible. It is. It's yeah. very readable, very accessible. It's really tremendous. Um, and, of course, a com as you mentioned, a complete counterpoint Mm -hmm. to the portrayal in Shakespeare. So, uh, the audiobook on Richard III that uh, you gave me... War of the Roses by John uh, Gillingham. Yes, so how does that... Have you listened to that? No, I have not. Okay, so yeah. you, you're the only one that has mm -hmm. uh, history with both, no pun intended. Right. So how does that... Because I, I need context here since I've not read the, the book. Uh, this how is, does that compare to this as far as the take and the overall approach? Because it was very... I wouldn't necessarily say pro Richard, but if you had to say, you know, one or the other, it's very uh, positive. Um, it's, it was very Yorkishly uh, balanced, I would say, uh, and you'll find that most portrayals are tend to lean a little bit more Yorkist. I think mostly because Edward was such a good king and Henry the Sixth was such a bad king, and we kind of give Edward a lot of credit for making good government come back. And Richard shares some of that because he, in many respects, is intended to be a continuation of his brother's policies. Yes. 
And, and that's something that England had become very, very fond of because Edward brought peace. You know, like it says in Monty Python, what did the Romans ever give us? Brought peace. Hmm. You cannot underestimate the value of that. That's very important. Yeah, it was very much a settlement mm-hmm. up to that point That's right. of, of the conflicts, the uh, War of the Roses conflicts. Yeah, because you have to remember, it's about 14 years that Edward reigns peacefully and unopposed. Long enough for, it's half a generation, folks. So you have to remember that, of course, Richard is going to be an arbiter of that. And Kendall is very clear, just like Gillingham was, that even though uh, at the beginning Richard shows great promise, he's intended to be a continuation of Edward. The problem is, just like McClellan at the Peninsula Campaign, Richard brings himself to the thing. And he lets certain decisions he makes color everything that happens after that. But Richard is very much up to the point where he decides to take the throne. He's seen as not only a sympathetic, but ultimately a savior figure to continue the good government that his brother did. However... He, he jealously guards his brother's very legacy. So. Yes, that's correct. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons... It's very hard to separate the... If not his brother's physical legacy. That's right. right, The genetic legacy. Yeah. Uh, In many respects, I think if you're asking for an apology for Richard, Kendall is pretty good at giving that, don't you think? Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I I think he... he is a, it's a sympathetic portrayal, but at the same time, it's not a fawning portrayal. That's correct. In, In many respects, this book is one that the Richard III Society would hold up and say, see, you really need to give this guy another look. Shakespeare really did him no favors. We know this. Shakespeare really went off the rails on a lot of stuff. Now, in 2019, we have the hindsight of finding Richard's body and recognizing just how much of an exaggeration or not that Shakespeare gave to him, say, physically. There's no question that while Richard was portrayed as a humpback, and this disformed figure, that was in some ways true. Because we know he had scoliosis. And it would be obvious in his gait, in his walk, that something's not exactly right. right. Shakespeare simply takes that that characteristic that was probably well known and exaggerates it forward. Well, yeah, you can't have been a monarch at that time, especially one who was on the battlefield. That's right. And, and been the caricature... That you see portrayed so often. Yes, right. Richard was a good soldier. There's yeah, no really good soldier. You know, he had to have had physical prowess. Yeah, that's right. He simply had an anomaly or deformity that was minor, but noticeable, and therefore that's what one of the things that I'm sure. And it was one of these kind of things. Onto. It's yeah. It's a lot like Wilhelm uh, II. That's right. Um, Richard's compensating. He, that is he, correct. He works really hard at being a good soldier and. That's right, because he knows... Lifting a shield and lifting a sword, he gets... Because you can tell, based on the scoliosis that we know he has now, uh, he would have had to compensate for that. It would have been noticed. It wouldn't be obvious, but it would be noticed. Which begs the question, because I I love the what-ifs. No scoliosis, does he become the soldier that he was? And if he does, does he lose? Oh, absolutely. But you have to understand Bosworth... The reason that Richard lost Bosworth, A, he was not very good at building coalitions. They were weak. The Stanleys did not, uh, didn't have a real reason to support him. 
Uh, the Tudors promised them a lot. There were also familial connections with the Stanleys. Yeah. They were untrustworthy to begin with. But the reason Richard loses is because he lets his ego get in the way. He thinks he glimpses Henry Tudor on the field and says, I am the shit when it comes to taking people down personally because Edward IV was my brother. He did this at Toton. He was the personal commander in the snowstorm that beat the shit out of all comers. I can do this too. I'm taking this guy down. He goes out in the field and gets his ass massacred. It was his own hubris and arrogance that caused him to charge into a battle by this time, which is not the same situation as it was at Toton. Things have changed. You're in the summertime. You've got a lot of stuff going on. You've got a well-trained army against you. John Devere, the Earl of Oxford, was a primo battle commander. So, however, just as a, again, to play the what if there, if he doesn't have the scoliosis, if he's not compensating, does that ego develop? Does he take off? Ah, now that's a very good question. Uh, because of the fact he's always seeming to have to prove himself. Right, right. Uh, I think Especially given the nature of how he got the throne, you know? Uh, well, he said, I mean, Shakespeare's very clear. He says so, uh, at one point, my kingdom stands on brittle glass. You might remember that. He recognizes he is somewhat tenuous, but also understand he's reigned here successfully for two years. Yeah. 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 He's even had a parliament during this time. And he survives multiple... Well, Buckingham's Rebellion is two years in the past. Yes. Unlike Shakespeare, where it all runs together, together. there is actually quite a gap between putting down Buckingham and what happens at uh, Bosworth. That's correct. But let me... um, So this is, you know... Yes, where I to, to, yeah, I mean, this, this is great, great, great. But what, again, fascinated me, though, is there's there's some connections here. Shakespeare, you guys are, you know, it, it, you know this. Even though it's the greatest literature, Shakespeare knew which side his bread was buttered on. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he tried to appeal to the Stuarts. He had to. He yes. appealed to the Tudors. He knew he needed to appeal to to the powers that be in order so to... Have his plays performed. Yeah, have these things well, performed. Yes, because Richard II was a big risk for him. Now, this, now, you have to understand, Richard III was written much later. By this time, he's gotten comfortable knowing, yeah, I can tell these stories because I've done all these others. Henry V was so awesome. Everybody gets that, the glory days. Everybody knows Richard. And the, the, Tudor, the Tudors reign now. Richard is a great opportunity to make them look good. Yes, he does so. right, and the sources, though, as we mentioned, again, we go back to like Hollingshead and Thomas More, are so pro-Tudor, and again, this idea of the Tudors are among the first to really use propaganda. propaganda. Yes, and not only that, some of the first books printed in England are actually during Richard's reign, so. That's right, because... Wait, does, it, does the Gutenberg Press make it there that quick? Yes, there is a... Uh, and and Kendall talks about it. There is a guy that. that has moved to London with a printing press That's right. who has begun printing. Right. And so it just fascinates me that almost immediately one of the greatest advances in human history is nearly immediately turned to... Propaganda. Propaganda. That's correct. It's, it's just like, Wow. 
Well, that's also you know, a bit of a genius on the tutor's part because yeah. you know just because they have this weapon here does not mean they have the will or the vision to understand it. So you know they 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 embrace they, it yeah, wholeheartedly. They had guys um, writing pro tutor histories, mm. getting them printed, mm. and then that becomes the sources for Shakespeare. Right. A great number, especially of the London citizenry, but all throughout the nobles, they are all literate at this time. They're starting to become that. That's rare before. Uh, Just a hundred years before that, that would not have happened. But because this is so available, they're taking advantage of that, uh, particularly in London. It's very similar to the way the Romans did it. You have to, uh, or or the Parisians too, you rule the capital and everything else follows. You have a revolution in France and the capital, it follows outwards. Same as with London here. Control the city of London, which Richard does very effectively, as you see in Shakespeare. Well, that's because in practically every pre-industrial society, that's going to be true, though. That's right. Because all of the power structures mm-hmm. are in the capital. That's right. Yeah. You know, you look at the United States, if you take over Washington and conquer it, First, 90% of the country is going to go. <laughs> Second, everything that's there is replicated throughout the rest of the country as well. Everything right. is so, because, you know, in a country like ours, you want the bits of power in everybody's state. That's right. It's like half a- of the government sits in, you know, West Virginia right now because of that, <laughs> because of Robert Byrd. But, you know, so that's very much true in that uh, back then, every, everything was like that, whether it be Rome or. Uh, France or England or we can't say Germany because there really wasn't a Germany right uh, for quite some time but <coughs> yeah, they were an example of decentralization whereas uh, the centralized government was beginning to become more and more powerful at this point and the War of the Roses was very very instrumental in making that happen because you realize very quickly the only way you can have armies that are a- capable of being put into the field with any cohesion whatsoever, you have to have a centralization factor mm-hmm. in that. Yes. The War of the Roses, uh, one of the reasons it was so long and so bloody, because it was factional at its base. And that doesn't bode well. You realize Richard gets this. Edward gets this. You better consolidate, and you better have allies. And if Richard has, has a failing, and I'm sure he has many, but one of his biggest failings is, from a practical standpoint, he failed at that. He did not have a solid power base. Uh, the Percys were weak, lukewarm at best. The, the Howards were strong. That was one of his, uh, the, the Norfolks, Duke of Norfolk. They were very strong, but that's about it. Buckingham is long dead. The Staffords are gone. They're uh, not a problem. The Nevilles are gone because yeah. Warwick is gone. So the, all that power in the north, Richard assumes to himself. That's well, a very narrow base. You cannot assume supreme personal executive power, <laughs> if you want that from Monty Python, and expect to be able to have it. You need allies. You need relationships. And there's nobody left. Yeah. Uh, the Stanleys are one of the few that's left standing, and they are notoriously uh, quick to turn the coat. Yeah, there's some of history's great opportunists, the, that's right. the Stanley family. I think that's a good way of putting it. I think history judges them poorly at times. Sir William Stanley was a bit of a ruffian. And a bastard, not not biologically, but uh, in the temperament standpoint. But his brother, Lord Stanley, was actually a pretty decent guy. 
Uh, and uh, Shakespeare portrays him pretty well. If you see uh, Olivier's movie that we watched last week or so, uh, Lawrence Naismith does a fantastic job of conveying that conflictedness. Yeah. He doesn't really want to support Richard, but he knows he kind of has to at first. And it's only when he sees the opportunity does he take it. But he does so very, very sparingly. It's only at the very last. He says, you know, uh, when he goes and visits Henry Tudor in the movie, uh, he says, but on thy side I shall not, I cannot be too forward, lest thy brother, stepbrother, tender George, be executed in his father's sight. Sibling. Yeah. Sibling. Siblings. That's right. Sibling. Yeah. So, um, well, while we've covered a ton of actual personal history of Richard, uh, but I want to draw you guys out a little bit more about this piece of it that, again, is these threads of history we always talk about. Um, it It just stuns me that, again, right at the beginning of this great revolution in human affairs, it's used to prop up essentially a usurper Mm -hmm. that uh and like you said it's a genius move Mm -hmm. it's a genius move to take this infancy or this technology in its infancy uh, of printing and use it as propaganda and then for shakespeare to pick up on that and take off with it in this you know great uh English language entertainment. In, in many respects, Shakespeare is the modern, is the proto uh, movie studio. He's the yeah. entertainment factor. He's the, the factory that creates the entertainment. He's not the media, the news media, which is the pure form of propaganda. He's the subtle form of propaganda. He's the slow corruption as opposed to the in your face. Uh, fake news, if you will. Yeah, you could say he's the uh, shaper of the culture mm-hmm. as opposed to the purveyor of the opinion of the day. That's correct. Yeah. And, but he's also very, very uh, deliberate and consistent. The question is, what is his true beliefs? Not sure we can even say that with authority. We've been talking about that for a lot. Is, is Shakespeare... Just somebody who knows who br- who butters his bread and gives accordingly, or does he truly believe that the Tudors are the second coming in many ways? Hmm. I would, I would say he probably more knows where his bread is buttered, uh, mainly because depending on who you believe, mm-hmm. and of course being Catholic, I would go with this that he was secretly uh, very Catholic, and in the England that he found himself in, that's not necessarily the safest thing that's to do. Correct. That's correct. That's not right. a good idea. Yeah. 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 So if if he is, then you definitely have to say he falls into the I know where my bread is buttered category. Right. And there's some truth that you can back that up with because there's right. no question that artists are very much at this point dependent upon the patrons. The oh, patronage absolutely. system yes. is, is... There I mean, is no independent voice or... No, that's uh, correct. Yeah, so... Yeah, it's true. We we think of artists as being independent, self-supporting. Up until modern times, that has never no, been the case. In fact, Shakespeare and Michelangelo, who were somewhat... Uh, Michelangelo's before him, but not that much before him. Yeah. Michelangelo was closer to being a contemporary of Richard than... That's uh, correct. Uh, although, he's still still not, but... Right. Yeah, because he lived so long. Uh, nevertheless, the patronage system is alive and well 
during this whole period of time. Yes. It's become more of, a, in England anyway, it's become more of a, uh, a written, text, textual version of patronage as opposed to art. Yeah. The English were not... There, there's almost no independent art until the 1800s. I mean, art's driven essentially by who the patron is, whether it's the church well, or, the patrons, or the state or whoever. Well, the patron almost always would have been the ruler. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, because even if it's not the ruler himself, it's going to be somebody who supports the ruler. Right. Um, in England, the feudal system is still very active at this point in many respects, even though the mercantile class is is rising and it is becoming more and more and, and Richard, powerful. Yeah, and Richard backed the mercantile class right. very strongly. He was very yes. smart. He was very much a visionary in that because yes. that the old school would have would have told him, "No, you don't do that. It's all in the Lords." Uh, Richard was, uh, and I think Edward was very much part of this too. He recognized that there's money to be had here. If you and if you want money and you need money and believe me, kings are always in debt and poor at this time. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure you've got plenty of guys in your pockets because Italy controls a lot of the banking. Yes, you want strong banking in England as best you can get it. So you're going and to then open facilitate it, backing well, them opens up the trade. That's correct, and trade fuels if the you, taxes. It, you can also tell who is the monarch that is the most in debt or most in need of funds right. by one thing. It's very subtle today. We don't talk about it very much. But it's whether or not they allow Jews in the country. That's correct. Whether tacitly or not. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Seriously, because that's where, uh, for ill or not, the reputation of Jews being you know, money-grubbing uh, people comes to the fact that they were moneylenders during this time. And very successful at it. And usually. very successful at it. Because they had no home. They had no native industry. Right. But being a community that hung together, uh, they had money. And so, you know, uh, a lot of countries would let them in to be part of court, but not openly. That's right. Because they had laws on the books. You can't be Jewish and live in my, my realm. Um, but England was one of those. Yes, and Eng- exactly. England yeah. was one of them. That was under Henry II, where most of them, they were mostly expelled. Until they need money again. Mm-hmm. Well, at this time, too... Italian bankers were huge. Yes. Uh, Henry VIII was notorious. Uh, many of Thomas More's excursions abroad onto the continent, he was very, and he became very much familiar with that. He often wrote in his letters that he hated it because it was the travel was awful, the weather was hard. <laughs> uh, was to go over there and secure money and secure yeah. funds. That's what you did uh, because you know your king needs money for things like the field of the cloth of gold. You know you've got to look better than the French king. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I just, uh, it just, uh, I think that's a thing that, that we don't get because we admire Shakespeare so much. This, you know, this, um, you know, awesome flowering of the English language. We see it as these uh, amazing stories that get told over and over again in different, uh, different styles for. What is it now going on? Five hundred years. Yeah, um, I've always said that every sitcom is basically stolen from Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Pretty much, uh, yeah. It, you know, almost every sitcom setup is is something you'll find in The Merry Wives of Windsor, or, or As You Like It, or right. Taming yeah. of the Shrew. Right. Well, even <laughs> Romeo and Juliet, Taming of the Shrew, Two Gentlemen of Verona. All of these things are, and that still influences 
our modern entertainment today. But to think at the same time, I, I give him the benefit of the doubt saying, well, he was trying to produce art, but at the same time, he's, he's, trying, pre- to he's trying to produce political propaganda to keep the theater open and keep him self-fed. But he also he also recognized, too, and this is something we, do, we cannot forget, because Shakespeare, it has to please the court. Yes. But, it, but, it, but only to the point where he can get it produced. After that, it has to please the masses. Because you've got please the audience, that, yeah, please yeah. the audience. That's correct, and those are the those are the common everyday people. That's one of the reasons that his first historical tetralogy has the character of Falstaff, yes. because that people love that. Because hey, this is somebody that we can get into, uh, and you can tell that greater story of Henry V, which ultimately I believe is really what he was leading to with that first tetralogy. It was mm-hmm. because, as I said earlier, Richard II was a risk. Because you're doing a play about a, the deposition of an anointed king. That shit don't fly very much. Most monarchs don't want to hear that story. Well, yes, because you don't want to remind people that it can happen. That's exactly <laughs> right. So Richard II was a great risk for him. Uh, he did it well. The fact that everybody knew the story anyway helped. And it ends well with Henry V. It creates the circumstances which ultimately leads to the glory days. Yeah. The greatest of English kings to set the throne at that time was considered to be Henry V. Yeah, Henry V, yeah. So once they stayed around patiently enough, they had the payoff. And then, of course, he reverses it and takes the decline out and ends with Richard III. That was an easy one, though, because you know the Tudors who are sitting the throne... They very much don't like Richard. So yeah, they, and then they need, him. and it's just they need even all of those years after. Mm-hmm. They still need that reminder that of the people, propaganda that That's right. yes, we're actually the ones that ought to be here because Richard was a scumbag. That's right. Uh, yeah, it's interesting because we talked about this prior to starting the recording, but about how um, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire was one of the last mega spectacles mm-hmm. that was made in Hollywood. Very much so, I think you could say that these historicals of Shakespeare are very much like those. Because people like these kinds of stories. Right. You know, it's not, you know, we for us, we think of it, you know, it's a bunch of kings we've never heard of, you know, talking funny, nobody can understand it until after you've listened to it for the first 30 minutes, and by then you're probably lost. And so, but for them... It's recent history. It's like us That's watching great. World War II movies. That's correct. Or World yeah. War One. We know this stuff. We know it. Our grandparents lived it. Right. So for them, I think sitting through this these historicals, even though Shakespeare had to get them through the censor, it's still for the the people. It's for them. It's the big me- mega epic. That's correct. That's right. And they have much, uh, you know, they're much closer to it. They, they know it. They, some you of them don't really need a lot of setup for that, for them. Right, exactly. But you do for us. For us, you do. <laughs> and But I can also tell you this much, that when you see these performed, if you take the time to do the research and understand the familial connections, it's really all about that. If you can get that down, then all of a sudden whole new universes open up. Because it still is about families. Yes. It still is about human relations. It's really not so much ambition. Shakespeare tackles that in other plays. The historicals are really not about, about ambition. They're about vengeance. They're about good government. They're about glory. 
but it's not really about the other. Well, and about, like, as you say, audience-pleasing. That's yeah. right. It's, yeah. Um, but, you know, Shakespeare carries this over even into the uh, tragedy plays. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, because Macbeth ties into, by this time now, it's the Stuarts. Yes. And uh, the Stuarts have always claimed Banquo as an ancestor. That's right. And that's why Banquo is essentially a martyr in Macbeth. Right. Um, yeah. in, in many respects, he is paying homage to King James to show them that, yeah, I'm going to do a Scottish play and you're going to love it because it's all about glorifying you. Yeah. But it tells it's a rousingly good tale. And the whole too. the whole Banquo's ghost is the the uh, the many scepter or was it the treble scepter and the mirrors right. going in the history. That's all supposed to be Banquo's descendants ending in James. James correct. That's right. And it's and it's it's very much propping up that Stuart piece. In many respects, I think Shakespeare's doing this because this is like 1603, if mm-hmm. I remember right, when he wrote it. And by this time, I mean, James is, he's a secure monarch, but he's Scottish. <laughs> he's different. He needs to understand and needs to be made to feel, I am the king of the United Kingdom now. They wouldn't use those words, but ultimately that's what we're talking about here. Yeah. He was a bit of a Ferengi-type interloper, uh, <laughs> you know. Yes, he is. That's correct. <laughs> not, not, not necessarily Star Trek, for, but, the, you know, this foreigner, that's right. Ferengi, he, he, a strange... Uh, and, and he's basically the only one standing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And at this else point, and, uh, and he and his his claim is clear, but it's kind of loose too at the same time because wow. you get this far into to a monarchy, yeah. there are so many loose claims. <laughs> now, granted, they don't think it, but it, you know, to me at this point, you know, whoever can get there, you've got just as good a claim as half the other people. And that's part of what happened too, because unfortunately, all those good claimants, Henry VIII killed most of them. Yeah. Yeah. And Elizabeth, what he didn't, Elizabeth did. So They were a pair. Yeah, they were. They really were. Father's daughter, there's no yeah. question. And, you know, she took it, I mean, she took it much farther yes. than Henry, I think, ever would have considered. That's right. Uh, you know, his whole thing with, you know, just to bring the, the church stuff into it, because you talk about Henry, you almost have to. That's right. Um, but his whole thing was so much, uh, not so much the, the, the uh, religious thing, it's just, i got to have an heir. That's what, I yes. have to have... A boy. I've got to stabilize. Yeah, I got to have somebody that I can uh, say this is my heir. And of course, he doesn't get that, right. and that's how we get Elizabeth. Uh, and so, and that, but Elizabeth, she's like, you know, Dad had the right idea. I'm going to show. I'm going to do Dad one proud. That's right, and, and she, she did. Really blows it all away. That's right. Yeah, well, and it, it helped the fact, of course, that she reigned so long. Yes, that yes. that had a lot to do. Yes, with Yes, she was it. able to put her stamp on it. Very much so, and she was, and she was very, and there was much glory. That she had given uh, during the Spanish Armada, yes, was during her time. So th- there were certain things that went okay. with that that brought that through. Unfortunately, I think, for in many respects, if you ever get a chance to watch the movie with Richard Burton uh, and uh, Jean-Vive Bujold, uh, the Anne of a Thousand Days, uh, it's full of this irony about Henry. And of course, Richard Burton is unmatched. As, as Henry VIII, he speaks about how this country could never be ruled by kings, uh, queens. I don't think it's very possible. Which, of course, is a smack, smack, smack in mm-hmm. the future saying the very thing that he's saying cannot happen, should not happen, must not happen, is exactly what does happen and for the right reasons. And if he had just acknowledged that from the beginning, that's I don't right. know how history would be different. Well, that's correct. That's right. Well, ultimately, 
Yeah, but it's complicated. Anne Boleyn. Yeah, Anne Boleyn. If Anne Boleyn, I I, I read something in Quora the other day about if Anne had produced a male heir early, before Elizabeth say, or the one that she miscarries. She miscarries one after that. Uh, And part of that is due to a fall of hers, we believe. A little ambiguous, but he was a boy. He was born dead. If that had, if that child had been born and survived and thrived, would Henry have put her away at all? Oh, probably not. The, pro- the question, yeah, you're probably right. Uh, it, it very much would not because one of the reasons he wanted to get rid of her is he wanted that male heir, which did not exist at the time. Right. Uh, he thought her accursed because of that second, you know, two times. Which is ironic when you think about this. Yeah, because, because their understanding of how babies are produced, obviously the, the mechanics they understand, but to them, the woman was just the ground that the seed was planted in. They had no contribution. It was all from the male. That's right. And yet, it's all he, their fault. He keeps blaming uh, all the women he's yeah. married to. Yeah. It's like we say about that one friend of ours. <coughs> what, do you, what is the common denominator in all your failed relationships? You. You. That's right. <laughs> that's exactly right. And that's, and that's what happens. Make sure he doesn't ever get wind of this particular episode. <laughs> Well, that's pretty tremendous, guys. What are we doing on time here? Are we doing okay? Uh, we're about 33 minutes in. All right. 34. Well, that sounds like a good uh, good place to wrap up. I was just uh, putting some of this Angel's Envy, you know, in there and just trying to get all the flavor of it. And it really does. It's got a lot of complexity. It does. It a is lot. a fantastic bourbon. Although, even a bad bourbon is still bourbon. It's still good stuff. So, yeah. um, You got one last question for us with regards to Richard. Okay. To bring us kind of back to where we started on this here. Um, one of the, do you feel that Richard's personality is able to come through from Kendall? That's tough because I think Kendall is kind of deliberate and not right. really doing a lot of psychological, personal, personality type study here. Just the facts? Um I think where he can establish factually elements of the personality, yes, that's what he does. Right. Um, well, just hearing what you guys have said about him, that would almost have to be the case because for the personality of Richard, what do we have other than Shakespeare? Just, you know, just, again, the the actions that he took. Correct. One of the key things to, to me, motivations, yeah, uh, in all of this is... Of course, I, we didn't even go into the whole fate of the princes or any of that stuff. Yeah, that's another. That, that's like five more shows. <laughs> that's yeah. another episode. We could do that for a while. But one of the key things to me is, at one point, I believe this is after Buckingham's Rebellion, and the princes are believed to be dead, he approaches Edward's widow, Elizabeth Woodville, that's the correct. former queen, uh-huh. and her surviving daughters, uh-huh. and says, it's okay. You don't have to be in sanctuary anymore. Right. Uh, I'll I'll provide you with, a, I don't know what you would call it at this era, but like an annuity or a That's right. uh, uh, a little bit of a stipend, a little bit of yeah. You'll have I'll provide you with a living. You're safe. You have my word. Right. And his word meant enough that they, they did. Came, they, they, they came, came out of the sanctuary and actually, uh, you know, for the for the remainder of Richard's reign, did very well. Yes. He took care. He took good care he of took them. Very good care of them. Yeah. So I think that's that part. Again, a factual thing, 
is a really good indicator of what he was really like. Uh, he was very generous. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was very protective of Edward. But he wanted to do Edward one better, because we talked about this a little bit too. He was, I don't know if the word's embarrassed, or he thought Edward was great, except for this dissipated life. This womanizing. This womanizing life. This, that he had. And that's, that's Richard wanted to improve on that. Richard so, considered himself to be a rather upstanding man. Yeah. He had his flaws, but as a general rule, publicly, he, 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 I said, you know, basically, I may be ambitious, but I'm all these things. In many respects, he was, he he was, was, amb- he was ambitious in a good sense yep. in that he did want to continue good government mm-hmm. and stability mm-hmm. for England. And he also wanted to give the Yorkist name and cause the proper reputation. Yeah. Well, and they'd already lived through a king... Uh, in a minority situation, right. like the princes would have been, right. and it was a disaster. Correct. It's very fresh in their minds. What we talked about. That's right. Henry the and that's not the first time that. either. That has yeah. any any time during history because these guys know that. Any time the minority of a king, it is disaster for the kingdom. Yeah. And Richard, for good or ill, wants mm-hmm. to avoid that. He wants well, to avoid and, that and take over. You know, we didn't really talk about it, but you know, I feel like you can't really talk about him. Without talking about the princes. You're right. Because... That that destroys his reputation. Exactly. Our opinion of Richard will forever be shaped in some way... Yes. ...by what happened to the princes. Whether it was a Henry II, will no one rid me of these troublesome nephews? That's, that's right. I think, yeah, there's a or great deal of that. Yes. A direct, i got to slip these guys' throats because I they're in my way. Yeah. You know, whichever it is... He's got to bear some responsibility That's right. exactly. for it. Even if his, and I suspect this is probably closer to the truth, they can't be trusted with the crown. I'm the only one that can do this. Well, and see, and partially because, you know, we are now some 500 years, That's right. more than 550 years, give or take a little, uh, past this, it's hard for us to to understand the dynamics. That's right. We can't reconcile that we from, don't, from a modern honestly, moral perspective. I don't know enough about it personally to be able to say, all right, who would have who would have been the caretakers of the kids? Who would have been the regent? Well, well Richard was already appointed protector. 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 Okay. He foiled, <laughs> and it, this is more than I, we need to get into, but he essentially foiled a Woodville coup attempt okay. to sideline him and <laughs> take over but he Control was of the princes. Yeah, but that was notorious. Uh, he had seen that happen with Henry VI's minority. He knew of that. It was just a, a generation oh, yeah. ago. And protectors don't do well. They right. usually get and killed. We, we talked about and this he a couple knows of that. ago. He yeah. knows that. That that's part of his motivation. self-preservation is part of this. It's a Which, big one. To today's ears, is one of the things that is going to be a knock against him. In his day and age, that might have been seen as a positive a sign of a. Strong, He's decisive. Yeah. Yeah. But for us, to murder his nephews because he was afraid of what they were going to do to him, and they're, what, uh, 12 and 9? I don't know how old they are. Yeah, about like that. that. Yeah, 12, yeah, 12 and 9. 12 and 9. You know, they are years away from being able to exercise power for themselves. He feared, uh, though, their folks like the Woodville would exercise power through them. Yes. Yeah. And that's yeah, a very that's real the thing to, to keep in mind. In Shakespeare, again, this kind of this propaganda of... The, the sons are very innocent, the, yes. or the nephews are very innocent. Yeah. But in real life, 
the oldest one was a Woodville kid. He'd mm-hmm. been basically around Woodville's his whole life. He'd been indoctrinated very much. And so. they all hated Richard, and Richard knew, you know, it yeah. doesn't do me any good to be the protector because he's got Woodville's in his ears That's all right. the time. They've raised him. I've been in the North all these the last 10 years or so. He barely knows me. Uh, he's not going to, I am not going to have a real influence over him. I will be shunted aside at worst, at best. Worst, I'll lose my head. They will manipulate him because they'll almost. He will almost certainly be killed when when right. the prince reaches the man, uh, majority. Very much so uh, because they the, he's the because the o- he's the only band in town. He's the only yeah. representative of the Yorkist cause. Yeah. It's all it's all Woodville's otherwise. So here we're, we've circled right back again to this amazing power of the printed word, the amazing power of the printing press, and co-opted into this, you know, propaganda right from the start. That we it's don't have, we don't have this real picture of Richard hardly at all. We just really we, don't. we argue this whole thing well, because we're speculating how powerful yeah. Shakespeare was. Yeah. Right. You yeah. can make the argument though that we don't have a real picture of any of them this far uh, in the in the future. Well, because the printing press is in its infancy. Mm-hmm. There's not a whole, and as you pointed out. Illiteracy was the rule up mm-hmm. until that's correct. You know, because you're talking about we are just starting the Renaissance. That's right. The Renaissance and the Renaissance comes kind of late to England to begin with. Yeah, 1485 you know? is the it, believe it or not, it's the demarcation line. Bosworth Field is considered the demarcation line between the Middle Ages in England and the Renaissance. It changed after that. It's, it's a convenient, however, it, it's a convenient it may time be, but because it's I such a change. Argue, I would argue that the cultural renaissance, the real renaissance, yeah. does not come till later. But either way, because everything is is in flux here, not just societally, but you know the technology of changing the printing press and, and how we disseminate information. Yeah. Gunpowder has only been around during years during the Wars of Roses, right? In Before Europe. that, they weren't. Yeah, um, but. You know, when you think about this, all of the the, the effect of the printing printing press is comes after the fact. Yeah. You know, when we think of propaganda nowadays, usually we think of it as commercials and slogans and advertising. And, what you can put on a poster. Right. What you can put on a poster. Uh, you know, Nazi Germany was fantastic at that. What you can put on a poster kind of propaganda. And carried forward like Orwell. Yeah. Carrying forward in like 1984 is all revolved around. Right. Strength through peace, uh, peace through strength. Peace through strength. Big Brother is watching posters. The two minutes hate. Everything's quick hitter. But here's these entire pamphlets, uh, plays. These yeah. entire huge plays, already right from the beginning of, of mass printing, mm-hmm. mass communication in England mm-hmm. is immediately turned to prop up the Tudors and justify mm-hmm. their reign. And still today, yes, shapes our but our image of Richard III. That is correct, but oh, that's after the fact. You have to remember, though, most of Shakespeare's stuff was never printed during his lifetime. It's it's hand it's handwritten. Yes. I mean, his first folios, my goodness, they're in his hand. It's only later because they survived right. that the printing of these things come up. These are actually these are well, that's he, why I say these are not newspapers. Yeah. These are more like movies. These are actually li- but live he unquestionably plays. used printed sources. Oh yeah, Hollingshead. We well, had to. These yeah. are printed, mass-produced sources because he had to get the details right. Yeah. He recognized the scrutiny. People know these stories. You better get it right. Uh, there's certain things that you can change. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. But, but he got sir, but he got Richard so wrong, essentially. Ah, well, on that's purpose, a, on not purpose, not that's a mistake. That's on right. purpose, right? He gets Richard wrong because again, he knows what side his bread is buttered on. Mm-hmm. He's producing something to appeal to the tutors. But you know, I would guess I think his his Richard us. is not quite as wrong as we might think. I, I go back to what I originally said. The fact that Richard himself, we now know, had scoliosis, and it would have been uh, he basically takes certain facts that were known, exaggerates them, just nudges them out of the light and into the darkness, just enough where it's still a recognizable figure. Based it had to be because it had to be because you cannot go too far afield from that. Otherwise, you're creating something that's not there, and everybody say this is fake. This is not right. Well, we know it's not right. More than well, likely, but it's entertainment. Our picture of Richard because of the nature of the, the, the material, both because it's political, it's entertainment, it's also a play. It's got to be a caricature, but all caricatures are going to be based in fact. They have to be. They Otherwise, to be. they're not credible. They're, because they're not credible. Even if you go to, you know, the, the church picnics, the fairs, what have you, you have some artists doing uh, characters, you're recognizable. That's right. As who they are. Exactly. So, probably we have some sense of Richard, but I would argue that we just don't have the whole sense of Agreed. Richard. Agreed. And yes. I think... And Rick, Kendall's very much And I think that because too, that now that we have found Richard's body and we've done the forensic analysis and we know how he died, it's very clear exactly how he died. And it is consistent with what we know happened in Shakespeare's version of Richard III. It is not, it is not contradictory. It's not far afield. It's an easy, you can easily see how Shakespeare took what we now know as the historical Richard and just pushed a little bit. Well, and, and that's the thing. With and there's something his, I, I would say more, than a, more than a little. Well, um, what he yeah. can do is he can take the facts, especially well, because you're talking decades here. Yes, know, that's this correct. is not yesterday. This is not last year. Yeah, this, you're, this is you're not the 2016 a, presidential election. We're you're about, about a, what, 120 years? No, about, 100, about 100 years. Eh, 100 years. Yeah. It's a little over 1480s years. to, and Shakespeare's that's, writing some of these in about 1590. 90s. That's correct, yeah. yeah. So, so a little over 100 years. 100 years. Three generations. So the, the thing about it is, is that he can take the facts. And because it's 100 years later, he can ascribe whatever motives That's right. he wants. And let's face it, when it comes to Shakespeare, motive is everything. That is correct. Every play. In fact, that's, motive that, is, is that is the exact, and ultimately you don't have tragedy without motive. Yes. Because that's that it's the subversion of the motive into the tragedy. And I would submit. And ultimately, Richard history, III is, is, is at, in its essence a tragedy. I would submit that all history. Is both tragedy and comedy. That's correct. Mm-hmm. It just depends on who's the winner and who's the loser. That's correct. If you're the winner, it's a comedy. And comedy doesn't necessarily mean funny. Right. It just, just means nobody dies necessarily. Yes, yeah, so it just has a good ending. Right, just has a good ending. But tragedy is the true, what we think is truly tragic, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. like epic proportion. Well, and the, yeah, exactly. And the tra- if you're the loser, well, well, the, tragic. And, but the tragedy, it's a little bit deeper than that. Tragedy requires the protagonist carry the seeds of his own defeat in his, in in his, his, in his sense, fatal yes. flaw. Richard, that's, Richard III has that from the very beginning, true, and it's true. very clear. And he says, you know, I will portray myself as the villain since I cannot be the hero. Uh, and he's very clear at the beginning, more so than many of the other tragedies, as to he is the one who contributes essentially to his both his rise 
and subsequently his fall. Yeah. And it's the same qualities that enable that rise that also enable that fall. Well, that's what makes that's a great the, tragic That's what figure. makes it great. That's right. Great tragic figure knows he's on a bad course but can't do anything to change it. Yeah. It's not... It's Richard, like Wando Malari. That's right. He is one of the great tragic, tragic figures, figures of that's science correct. fiction. That's correct. Absolutely. Great tragic figure. Yeah, because he recognizes his course that he's but charting. Fact, he's very Richard the Third. When you think about it, very much so. Yeah. Yes. Because yeah, he he. Now the listeners, you have to go Google who that is if you don't know. Yeah, actually, I'll have to as well. well that's, oh my God. Is that Babylon Five? It yes, is. it is. Babylon okay, 5. so we, that's we, one. Side. We we. I can, think on that note, need we need to binge watch that. We need to finish up. So. We do. Well, I, we we can play one of the best episodes for you here in a few yeah. moments. We've got so, time for that. So, listeners, it leaves you with a question: Shakespeare, greatest writer of all time, or political hack? Why does it have to be mutually exclusive? <laughs> it isn't. It isn't. Right? It isn't. That's and right. Greatest writer of all time all of in the above. English language. In the English language. I, I'll give you that. Branna, when, when Branna did uh, Hamlet in 1996, uh, he, uh, the trailer of that speaks of Hamlet as the greatest la- greatest play in the English language. Yeah. And I think there, it deserves a little qualification on that, but it still doesn't take away from the glory and the grandeur. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's that's... It's a devil's advocate question for the listener. So, you know, one final thought. This is the final we'll take. Final, we'll final thought. It. Yeah, final thought. So, would Shakespeare be Shakespeare? That's what the air quotes. Uh, if instead of him, Ben Jonson was the court playwright. Think about that. Yeah, think about that one. If you read much of Johnson's stuff, though. It don't have the stay in power. It's too narrow. But, well, but he wasn't the court playwright. So he wasn't producing the court-approved style. It's not saying that they said, you go write this Shakespeare. That's right. But I think Shakespeare's genius uh, is bigger than Johnson's ever was because I think his vision and his mastery of irony, tragedy... Ben Johnson was just a name that comes up because he's one that he's considered Shakespeare's greatest rival right and there's some truth to that he's not bad he doesn't have the nuance that Shakespeare has he doesn't have the glory and the grandeur as I said I just think he's a he's a second fiddle and I think if you read them two of them you'll see that he's Salieri yeah he's Salieri he's Salieri (laughs) he's the patron saint of mediocrity here he's not bad but he's no he's no Mozart yeah there's no genius there maybe a little bit but nothing. Oh. Could, but he's not the same imagination. To steal from Babylon Five, he's the candle, and the other is the sun. <laughs> All right. All right. So awesome, awesome, awesome. Thanks for being with us here every week at Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Be sure to spread the word on your social media accounts. Follow us and retweet us. We are on Instagram and on Twitter at Snakes and Otters. Let your friends know that they can find us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and on YouTube. Just search Snakes and Otters Podcast to find us. And please, remember to leave us your comments and reviews. It helps people find us. And you can always send us an email at snakesandotterspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Martin. I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Catch us next week. Same snake time, same otter channel.